Hello and welcome back to Olympic Size, the unofficial, unlicensed, unaffiliated with the IOC True History of the Olympics. I'm your host, Bridget Natali, and with me, as always, are co-host Sarah and special guest Frank, and this is our third and final episode on the 1904 St. Louis Olympics. Athletics. We're going to go back to track and field. Was, it was the big event of the Olympics, and really the only one that most people cared about. It was held from August 29th through September 3rd, and had a few foreign competitors, although most people competing were still Americans. They were held at Francis Field in St. Louis. They constructed a very modern center track for the event. Can I just say that if you're going to have Olympics that are going to last for so many months, you're going to do track and field events, which take place outdoors. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Why are you holding them in August... In for, St. For Louis. Science. St. Louis. For science. This is a question that will get examined during the marathon. I, it just seems like poor timing. Yeah, yeah, you think you'd have any time to do this. Why the, like, butt crack of the devil time of year? That seems like that's, those are the you words know, that I would have used. That's an interesting phrase, but I think it is actually the one they use at St. Louis yes. to describe their own summers. I'm not... Especially late summer, you know, when everything is dead, it's, including you. It's human. Yeah, yeah. That's oh, bad. that that becomes a thing in the marathon. Oh, I'm sure. Um, actually, the weather wasn't bad for for this part, though. Okay. All right. Um, but which we'll get to in a second. Uh, the the very modern cinder track was one third of a mile in length, or about five hundred thirty six point five meters, which is why we don't do cinder. Very popular yeah. for a construction site yeah. at this point. And had one very long straightaway, four turns, and three short straightaways. So it was kind of like a trapezoid. Um. It stayed as a center track all the way until the 1980s, incidentally, when it was finally replaced with a synthetic track. The stadium is the same. The weather was extremely good. I don't know what I meant by that. Um, the weather was extremely good for a track meet, sunny the whole time, with temperatures from the high 70s to mid 80s, or about 25 to 30 degrees Celsius. Uh, the events were as follows. Foot races in 60 meters, 100 meters, 200 meters, 400 meters, 800 meters, 1500 meters, marathon. Hurdles in 110 meters, 200 meters, 400 meters, uh, 2,590 meters, and uh, a 2,590 meter steeplechase. Four mile team race, long jump, triple jump, high jump, pole vault, standing long jump, standing triple jump, standing high jump. Shot put, discus, hammer throw, 56 pound weight toss, which I think I explained in this part. Triathlon and all all around. Although I think the triathlon was that that gymnastics one. Is that not a self-explanatory event? Fifty-six pound weight toss. Well, what Here's it what the weight, weight toss is? <laughs> yeah, I mean, so countries competing in this this section were Australia, Canada, Cuba, Germany, Great Britain, Greece, Hungary, South Africa, Switzerland, and the United States. Malin also lists France and Ireland, though I think the Irish athletes may be counted as British for the IOC official records, like we talked about earlier. But we're all Irish, so we're going to go with they were Irish. Those are stolen medals. They are. They belong to Ireland. Uh, <laughs> I... No part of this. <laughs> the United States had 197 athletes competing. Greece had the next highest number with 10, and Germany with 9, and the rest with fewer. So predictably, the U.S. won the medal race with 68 total, 23 gold. Great Britain... Ireland, Great Britain, got two, one gold and one silver. Canada, Germany, Greece, and one mixed team all made it to the medal count with various medals. The sprinting events were dominated by Archie Hahn of the U.S. This guy's got a cool story. He was he won gold in the 60 meter, 100 meter, and 200 meter. He did not enter 
the event a favorite. Born in Dodgeville, Wisconsin, he had done most of his competing in the western part of the country, and most of the eastern athletes and reporters had never seen him compete. Plus, he was only 5 foot 6 inches tall, or about 1.5 meters. While he was considered a contender after winning the 1903 AU title for the 100-meter race, the safer bets were 1904 AAU winner Lawson Robertson, Nate Carnell, who had placed second in the 1904 um, IC4A 100 meter, I don't know what that stands for, and Faye Moulton, who had won the 1903 IC4A 100-meter race. None of them were prepared for Han's explosive start. At the halfway point in the 60-meter race, he was two meters ahead of the pack and kept that lead until the end. He repeated this in the 100-meter race, opening a lead of three yards in the first 20 meters. Nate Cartmel, who came in second, had a famously slow start, but stronger finish, and was only one and a half yards behind Han at the end. Han got an unexpected bonus in the 200-meter race when the other three in the race, Cartmel, William Hodgson, and Faye Moulton, were all penalized for a false start and had to begin the race one yard back. So they did the one-yard penalty for a false start. <laughs> Still first down. Yeah. <laughs> Side note, also competing in this race was George Poach, the first black American Olympian. He didn't make it to the finals, though. Um, he'll show up a couple times in this. Han would go on to win the 100-meter gold at the 1906 Intercalated Olympic Games, and that back-to-back 100-meter -back win would not be repeated until Carl Lewis, who repeated the feat in 1984 and 1988 after the disqualification of Ben Johnson. And then Usain Bolt in Beijing, uh, 2001 and 2012, and Rio de Janeiro in 2016. Han later wrote a book quote, called How to Sprint, that is a classic of the sport, and was later inducted into the Wisconsin Athletic Hall of Fame. Sorry, the book was inducted? Or no, he, he was, was inducted. Okay. Um, uh, the University of Michigan Athletic Hall of Honor and Virginia Sports Hall of Fame. Han was a sprinter, though, and did not compete in longer distances. George Poge also competed in the 400-meter race, coming in sixth. But that's not the most interesting story about that particular race. Harry Hillman of the U.S. was the favorite, and he did win. The two foreign competitors are Percival Molson of Canada and Johannes Runge of Germany. Neither placed. There were no heats, so all 13 runners were on the track at the same time, even though there were only 12 lanes. So one of them had to start behind the front line. Well, we've seen very loose uh, <laughs> definitions of lane with the swimmers grabbing each other's legs underwater and that Crash Carlson. Uh, <laughs> Crash McCree. Crash McCree Carlson. Causing some problems in the bikes. Um, it is a little weird that you would put one person just straight up behind the rest <laughs> yeah. for starting. Yeah. George, uh, uh, what is it? Percival Molson is the one this story is about. He was the great-grandson of John Molson, founder of Molson Breweries of Canada. He graduated mm. from McGill mm. in 1900 mm. and had earned every athletic award the university had. He joined Princess Patricia's Canadian Light Infantry to fight in World War I and fought at, in the Battle of Mount Sorrel in 1916 and was wounded. He was awarded the Military Cross and sent home, but insisted on returning, and on July 5, 1917, during a skirmish on the outskirts of Avignon, he was hit by a mortar hit by mortar fire while attempting to save a friend. Both were killed. The main athletic stadium at McGill University was renamed the Percival Molson Memorial Stadium in his honor. So if we have Canadian listeners who know McGill, that's what we're Molson, the name Well, we is. have American listeners. Listener, that's true. One of you must uh, know Molson beer. It's not very good. His, but, uh, but the grandson of the guy who started the brewery is the one who was the war hero. Who got the yeah, no, the war hero bit is much more impressive than the brewery. Well, he didn't even do the brewery. He 
it's just... I'm just saying it's not a good He's not responsible for the beer. (laughs) Forgive him. So, also, gold medalist. You remember this is the Jewish guy who punched, uh... Who punched the the guy in 1896. Remember he screwed him over about competing on the Sabbath? Oh, yeah. Is that... is that a thing that still happens? We haven't touched on it in a long time. It hasn't right? come up again, but I think it will because Chariots of Fire was all about that, and that, yeah. took, that was like about the 1920 Olympics or something. So I don't know if it's happening right now, but it does come up. Yeah, again. I, the question really is: Did it lapse? Were people not doing it, or was it just so blasé that no one's commenting on it? I it like was also it was all it was all Americans like running this. That so is a, true, and that was and it was all Americans who were the like sabbathists or whatever they called themselves who like wouldn't compete on the sabbath so it might have been that they just didn't have any events on sundays anyway uh meyer princeton competed in the 400 meter race and came in fifth uh most of america's top middle distance runners were competing in the 1904 olympics and so the 800 meter race had a lot of favorites along with them were johannes i don't know why this name is giving me trouble it's r-u-n-g-e and I'm like, how do you say that in German? Runge? Runge? All right, of uh, Germany and Peter Deer and John Peck of Canada. 800 meters is a grueling race, and it was one of the last middle distance races held at the games, which were held on a tight schedule and didn't allow for a lot of recovery time between races. They had nine months of Olympics. Yeah, but the, all the races were within like four days. That seems like okay. non-optimal schedule. Again, poor planning. Yeah, it was. As a result, no time for recovery. <laughs> guys just keep running, right? Like, that's fine. Uh, as a result, several runners had to be carried from the track in exhaustion afterwards. Runge, in particular, had it rough because he didn't speak English and had competed in the 800-meter handicap race three days before, thinking it was the Olympic event. It was the same thing that happened to that Japanese tennis player. He yeah. competed in the wrong event because he did... I, I'm assuming he was well, given the wrong information. Everything was also labeled Olympics, so... <laughs> yeah, there was a number, one, two, three, no context, right? The newspapers were probably reporting all the information that they had. <laughs> the one who actually won the race, John Lightbody of Chicago, was another spoiler that nobody had predicted to win. He also won gold in the 1,500-meter race by a lead of six yards and set a new world record. Again, he had not been the favorite. He also competed in the steeplechase. Out of a field of seven, six Americans and one John Daly of Ireland. Um, <laughs> oh, oh. Or Great Britain, depending on who you ask. Anyway, the race had several hurdles and a 14-foot water jump on each lap. John Daly was the favorite, and Lightbody was not favored despite two golds he had already won because he had never run a steeplechase before. Is a 14-foot water jump a standard steeplechase obstacle? Yeah, you, you don't, you're not expected to clear no, I understand that. <laughs> yeah, you run through the water. Like, you ever see, like, um, shoes specifically for steeplechase? They're, like, constructed to let water run out of them. So, hmm. yeah. Um, after the first lap, Daly had a lead of 10 yards ahead of Harvey Cohn and John Lightbody. He was another 10 yards behind Cohn. After two laps, J- Daly had a 40-yard lead and still led going into the last lap by either 15 or 60 yards, depending on the source. Which is, seems like a big gap, but... Sorry, you said 15 or 60, yeah. not 50 or 60? Yeah, 15 or 60, depending on the source. Okay. But he was leading, is the important part. But Lightbody ha- finished far stronger than he was anticipating, or Daly just couldn't keep up the pace, because Lightbody overtook him and won by 10 yards. Arthur Newton finished third, 30 yards behind Daly. Before the 1904 Olympics, Lightbody was a complete unknown. He would go to compete in the Olympic, go on to compete in the Olympics again against more a more diverse field of competitors and do well then too. So this was really the debut of a champion. 
We'll get to that when we get to those. I do look forward to Olympic Games that have international athletes. Again. Yeah. <laughs> Hurdles. The only foreign competitor was Australian Corey Gardner, who couldn't make it out of the qualifying heats. America's top hurdler, Edwin Clapp, entered but didn't compete. Thaddeus Schittler was the favorite. He had managed to match Alvin Kranzlein. That's the guy that Prince Dunn punched. Alvin Kranzlein's world record of 15 seconds in June, only to lose it because only two watches had recorded the time, which I guess at the time you need three. Oof. Uh, but still, it was known that what he had done, and he was the favorite. But 1903 champion Frederick Schull beat him by 0.3 seconds to win gold. Scheidler won silver, and Leslie Ashburner bronze. Edwin Clapp was such a dominating presence in the 200-meter hurdles that in his absence it was anybody's game. Harry Hillman, who had won gold in the 400-meter race, took the gold in the 200-meter hurdles as well. Also, George Poge, who I mentioned a couple times, became the first black American Olympic medalist when he earned bronze. In the 400-meter hurdles, Harry Hillman won his third gold and George Poge his second bronze. Hillman earned that gold as in the eighth, hurdle, he hit it very hard and almost fell. Frank Waller overtook him in the ninth hurdle, but somehow Hillman regained momentum and managed to win by 0.2 seconds. And remember, this was also the old, like, wooden T-style hurdles, which wouldn't just knock over when you Oh, hit they'll, them. like, break your legs yeah. if you don't make the jump style yeah. hurdles. Yeah, sure. And he hit that and still managed to win. Oh. Uh, <laughs> but when, while he ran a world record time, it didn't count for two reasons. First, he hit the hurdle, which was cause for invalidation. Also, the hurdles were only two feet, six inches tall, and the event standard was three feet. That's a significant difference. Yeah. Uh, Four-mile team race. This is, again, not a relay race, but a race where two teams all put six runners on the track and earn points based on where their runners finish. You know, I was so close to saying these track and field events were going rather smoothly <laughs> until six inches short of a three-foot construction. Yeah, that seems like a big... Fire thing. all your carpenters. <laughs> right. Like, measure twice, cut once, or freaking eyeball it. That's, that's a huge percentage difference. Yeah, that six-inch difference is significant. Um, uh, the team rates. Arthur Newton came in first with a lead of, quote, hundreds of yards over second-place finisher James Lightbody, and his team, the New York Athletic Club, won the race. Um, Who's that quote attributed to? Uh, Quote, hundreds of yards. I guess, the, I guess it was... That's a long way. Yeah. Um, All right. But yeah, this is the team race where you win points based on... So you have two teams of six of six runners. Sure. And you earn points based on, on where you come in. So first place you get, what, like 12. Second place gets 11 points. Third place gets 10, and then whichever team racks up the most points. Oh. So, okay. Uh, Lightbody earned a silver medal, medal with his team, a mixed team of French, American and French athletes. The one French runner was Albert Corre, which apparently is its some controversy over what nationality Corre was at the time. Because a lot of, like, again, it was 1904, there were a lot of people immigrating, and not all of them had, like, their citizenship yet. I mean, so. the bookkeeping on nationality seems to be fairly lax and much less important than the bookkeeping on what athletic club you're from. Yeah. So, was, I mean, this is fun. Yeah. Um, standing high jump, standing long jump, and standing triple jump were, again, dominated by polio survivor Ray Uri. Remember we talked about him last time. That where, continues to be impressive. Yeah, where he had been paralyzed by polio and started doing the standing jumps to strengthen his legs and became, like, this dominating Olympian. Um, but joining him was Joseph Stedler, another black American athlete who won silver in the standing high jump and standing triple jump. 
He actually tied for second in standing high jump with that's the same name. I don't and then beat him in a jump off to get the silver. I don't know. I wrote the wrong name down, so I don't know who he beat there. There was no athlete as dominant as Ray Yuri in the running jumps, uh, which are the ones we still do. Uh, Samuel Jones won the long jump, with Garrett Service winning silver, and Paul Weinstein of Germany winning bronze. In case you were wondering, yes, Paul Weinstein was Jewish and German, but lived until 1964. I did the cursory search and wasn't able to find much else about him, but at least we know that. I mean, that's a good thing to have dug up. Yeah. Like, I, I was like, oh, and then I looked him up and I felt a little bit better that he lived that long. Um, we also know that he was competing in the high jump and the standing long jump concurrently and running back and forth between events. <laughs> I feel like this would be a medal for running there somewhere. So, good job on that browns, bronze. That sounds really hard. That's <laughs> what I wrote down. Also, he was using a very different jumping style than the two who placed ahead of him. The Americans were using the scissor, scissors, while Weinstein was using a form that didn't yet have a name, but years later would be called the Eastern Roll. Which I think was where your legs stay together. So he just, like, straight invented a way of jumping? Yeah, yeah. Uh, speaking of Jewish athletes, Meyer Prinstein, our, our boy who punched Albert <laughs> Kronstein, got his redemption in the long jump, which was the gold medal he was screwed out of in 1896. He won gold with a distance that was about one, or what's that? Yeah, that was 18. Anyway, he won gold with a distance that was about one and a half feet further than silver medalist Daniel Frank, which is massive distance. Uh, Frank had recently beat him at the Metropolitan AAU meet, and it was expected to be intense, an intense bout, but Prinstein wiped the floor with Frank the whole event. And he also won gold in triple jump, beating Fred Engelhart by almost two feet, but falling short of the world record, which he had set. Well, there's a consolation <laughs> prize in there. He didn't lead until the final jump when he really pulled ahead. Uh, pole vault, Americans swept because they were the only ones competing. Winner Charles Dvorak tried to break his own record, but couldn't quite make it. A world record. Uh, the first event of the track and field competition was actually the shot put. There was one non-American competing, George, a Greek athlete, Nik Nikolaos... George, I don't know why the Greek thing's giving me such trouble. Georgiantis? Georgiantis? But he didn't place. Uh, Ralph Rose was one of the favorites heading into the competition as he held the world record but never actually won a major championship. He had managed to overcome that at the Olympics and won gold. His biggest competition was Wesley Coe, and just to give you an idea of what these two men looked like, Rose was six foot six inches tall and weighed 265 pounds, and Wesley Cole Coe was five foot ten inches and weighed 210 pounds. Rose actually beat his own world record with a throw of 48 feet and 7 inches. Ralph Rose didn't manage to get the gold in discus, though. He was tied with Martin Sheridan after six throws with a distance of 128 feet, 10 and a half inches. It was in a throw-off, which Sheridan won. Sheridan, an Irish immigrant, was a newcomer to the sport. He picked it up after his brother won the discus throw at the 1902 AAU Championship. This was only the beginning for Sheridan, who will be appearing in several upcoming episodes. Finishing out the discus was Nikolaos Gigantis of, of Greece, and so the Americans didn't sweep the event. Oh. Hammer throw was won by another Irish immigrant, one we talked about last episode, the great John Flanagan. Yes. He was the New York cop who, like, started this, like, big tradition of New York cops winning all these throwing events. <laughs> um, he had a throw of 168 yards and one foot. Uh, John DeWitt, or 168 feet and one inch. 
<laughs> Sorry. That scary. is a little That's a big different. difference. Yeah. Uh, John DeWitt won silver with uh, 164 feet and 11 inches, and Ralph Rose won bronze with a throw of 150 feet and half an inch. Rose was the only one who used one turn. The other two did the three-turn mm-hmm. method that uh, Flanagan invented. Uh, John Flanagan was also a favorite for the 56-pound weight throw. The other favorite was Etienne Desmarteau Canada. Backtracking a little because this event was the only held twice at the Olympics, and I'm guessing not many of you have gone to a Highland Games, but they this is where they do it. Caber toss? It's not caber toss. It's the, the weight. Caber toss? They're not caber toss. All right. The 56-pound weight looks like a shot put with a short chain attached to a metal handle. It's then thrown up and over a bar. So the point for this is not distance but height. This was the one. This is a terrible event. This is the one in the anthropological games that they could only get three guys to do, and yeah, then they all because they were to just trying again. to hand people chain chomps <laughs> and be like, "Do this." And so, uh, the, it's then thrown up and over a bar. So the point for this is not distance but height. Desmarteau beat Flanagan with a throw of thirty-four feet and four inches to thirty-three feet and four inches. Apparently, Flanagan had a flu at the time, which impacted his performance. Unfortunately, unfortunately, Desmarteau would not live to see the rematch as he was dead within the year of typhoid. <laughs> Just... It does sound like they at least had a stadium that could fit these events. I don't hear anything about oh, yeah, they weren't trees like... or spectators being impaled or hit with <laughs> shot foots, which, for new uh, listeners, is a thing that happened in previous Olympics. Yes, yes. When they had them in the, the park yeah. in Paris. Um, they also had a decathlon, but they called it the all-around championship. Now, when we do the decathlon, it's spread out over several days. In 1904, they had all ten events on the 4th of July. Because, again, there was no time. This These events were only available for, like, nine months. There was not a lot of wiggle room in the schedule. It's That's the most American thing that you could do is... Of too many sports events to the point of exhaustion near death on the 4th, on of, the 4th of July. So, the <laughs> events were, the 10 events were the 100-yard sprint, shot put, high jump, 880-yard walk, camera throw. I'm sorry? Yeah, like a speed walk. Speed walk. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. That used to be a big thing. Why don't they just run? They because s- then they would not be speed walk. Yeah, they still do rules. The- they still do the speed walk at the Olympics. Is it? Is yeah. it in the Olympics? Still? It's a yeah. very bad sport. Or it no, was, it's amazing. It was up until recently. I don't. Yes. I, I remember. I remember it coming up the last time, like at the Rio Games. Yeah. So I think so. And the the differences uh, for the uh, anybody who might not know the distance difference between running and speed walking is in speed walking you always have one foot on the ground. The best possible skill that you can have as a speed walker is the ability to cheat. And run without getting caught. <laughs> no, that guy who That's won. literally the entire contest. That was his, that, that, that was when he, he was able to do it. He was able to, like, move his feet in a way that, like, he barely had one foot he on the ground or whatever. was running. He was, he was essentially running. Yeah. Yeah, what they call yeah. running. Uh-huh. Anyway, so the 880-yard walk, hammer throw, pole vault, 120-yard hurdles, 56-pound weight throw, long jump, and one-mile run. All on one day. So, I don't. What's the problem? They got a walk. They got a nice, relaxing walk in the middle of that. Uh, not if you're doing it right. In which case, you're running because again, the best skill is cheating. 
Tom Kiley was the Irish champion and one of the favorites, along with two-time U.S. champions Ellery Clark and Adam Gunn. Clark was sick, though, and didn't finish the event. Kylie was fifth out of seven after the first four events, but the second half of the competition was all the throwing where he really shone. He also won the 880-yard block. All this added up to Kylie taking the win, making the event one of the few that a non-American won gold. It's it's an Irish gold. Yes! <laughs> Adam Gunn and Truxton Hare took silver and bronze, respectively. Ellery Clark still managed to beat John Grebe and Max Emmerich, even though he didn't actually finish the event. I guess he got enough high enough places oh. on the others. I mean, look, if you have enough points going into event eight or nine, maybe just take the rest of the day off. Yeah. yeah. Right. So <laughs> you can have fun. I'll see you later. This is our last I'll be in the medical tent. <laughs> this sucks. All right. Uh, last sport event that we're going to talk about was the marathon. Before we get to into this, I'll, I'm going to briefly explain another bizarre thing that was happening at the exhibition and why there were some black South African athletes competing in the marathon. Because they were not part of the human zoo and thus able to compete with other the other athletes, other Olympic athletes. They were part there as part of the Angler Boer War concession. The second Boer War was a conflict in South Africa that lasted from 1899 to 1902. I'm giving you the very abridged version of what was going on with this. There were three major groups involved with the the three major groups involved with this were the British Empire, the Orange Free State, which were largely Dutch settlers in South Africa, and the South African Republic, a different group of Dutch settlers who defeated the British Empire in the first Boer War in 1881. This war was remarkably brutal, especially to the civilian population. They actually called their refugee camps concentration camps, and the conditions were pretty much what you think when you hear that. A huge amount of farmland was destroyed. The situation was really bad for the survivors of the war. So when Frank Phyllis came along and offered people four pounds a week plus room and board to perform in the Angler Boer War concession at the St. Louis Fair, quite a number of people decided to go. The Wikipedia entry on the fair has about two paragraphs on this thing, and I think it gives you enough to get an idea of what it was, so I'm just going to read straight from it. Frank Phyllis produced what was supposedly, quote, the greatest and most realistic military spectacle known in the history of the world. Different portions of the concession featured a British army encampment, several South African native villages, uh, including Zulu, San, Swazi, and... And there's it's a lot of consonants in a row, so I'm going to probably say it wrong. Nidbele, and a 15-acre or 61,000-square-meter arena in which soldiers paraded, sporting events, and horse races were held, and major battles from the Second Boer War were reenacted twice a day. Battle recreations took two to three hours, included several generals and 600 veteran soldiers from both sides of the war. At the conclusion of the show, a Boer general, Christian de Vet, would escape on horseback by leaping from a height of 35 feet into a pool of water. So he'd do one of those horse jumping into water acts. Get out. Horses love those. Please tell me that there was a motivation behind this that is not horrifying. There's absolutely no way that's possible. Yeah, that the, the motivation was they were making money. And, yeah, okay. and these people were starving, so they well. participated. 
Admission raised from twenty. Like awareness, there's no kind of any. Oh no, no redeeming no. quality. No, no. All right. awareness, awareness of uh, how horrible conditions are for the people who are being subjugated to British. That's a valid thing to push awareness of. They were not pushing awareness. Okay. It was like you know, it was a show. Admission ranged from 25 cents for bleacher seats to $1 for box seats, and admission to the villages was another 25 cents. The concession cost $48,000 to construct, grossed over $630,000, and netted about $113,000 to the fair, the highest grossing military concession of the fair, because there was apparently more than just this one. This was just the big, big one. Fun! South Africans Jan Masciani, Robert W. Uh, Bertie Harris and Len Tanyane, um, aka Len Tao, were all veterans performing in the Anglo Boer War concession. I, I heard that like Len Tao was Len Tanyane's um, nickname, but when I looked it up, it wasn't like a nickname that his friends would call him. It was what the reporters wrote down for his name because they couldn't spell his name. I guess not a great sign. Yeah, um, oh. he was he was one of the black South Africans. In case that's <laughs> not clear. Um, John Masciani and Len Tanyane were the first black Africans to compete in the Olympics. They were running the marathon because they had been messengers during the war and were accustomed to running long distances. They were joined by athletes from a number of nations. This was the most diverse single event of the entire Olympics, as marathons and other extreme long-distance races were still hugely popular at the time. Uh, Malin actually gives this event short shrift, which is odd considering that it is one of the most infamous debacles in Olympic history. He lists the entire route, which I think is great because it sounds so banal. Uh, John Boyce did a video about this marathon, it's about 20 minutes long, titled Rat Poison and Brandy, the 1904 St. Louis Olympic Marathon. He described... Hmm. <laughs> yeah. Wait, oh, things are on. Things are about to get real fun. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's, that's not... Science. I like one of those things. Yeah, all those show up. Well, not um, in this context, maybe. He describes the route as places so ordinary that ghosts don't even live there. I think the whole area is suburban shopping development now, with a cheesecake factory, Crate and Barrel, CVS, etc., and at least one athletic shoe store. The day of the marathon, the route they took was first, five laps around the track before exiting through the East Gate. They ran up an incline, turned right onto Forsyth, passing eventually into downtown Clayton. They turned left onto South Merrimack, then onto Shaw Park Drive, and then went down a hill to South Brentwood. They went up a very steep hill before going onto Manchester Road. A little bit after that, they took a left onto Lindbergh. At about 19 miles, the, street, the route turned onto Olive Street and then Olive Street Road. A short stretch there, then a right back onto South Brentwood, which led into North Merrimack. Then back onto Forsyth, turning left, which led back to Francis Field via the East Gate. The race finished on the track in front of the press box on the south side. It was a route that uh, lasted uh, 24.85 miles or 40 kilometers. Complications. Yeah, because the actual route almost would be to sleep. It's yeah. very directions from a sat-nav kind of yeah. style. The first complication. The race was held on August 30th. The temperature was 90 degrees Fahrenheit, or just over 32 degrees Celsius. Keep in mind, as we mentioned last time, it's uh, last time we talked about the marathon, it's recommended that marathon officials cancel the race if the starting temperature is just 70 degrees Fahrenheit, around 21 degrees Celsius. Also, that was the recorded temperature in the shade. The runners were not in the shade. 
And anybody who has had to endure a Missouri summer day can probably tell you it was easily 100 degrees in the sun. The race started at 3 p.m. Did this kill more people than the water polo? <laughs> no one? Well, no spoilers. Yeah, no spoilers. And it would be run during the hottest part of the day. It was also very, very humid. The second complication, dust, inches deep. The roads were not paved, not ready for auto traffic as cars were a new invention, and were not designed to be used for a race. They were basically there for people walking or driving horse-drawn carts. However, during the race, the trainers and coaches and spectators drove cars just a little bit in front of the runners. Kicking, oh no! Yeah, kicking up huge clouds of dust. Have you like not? This is all new to you? Yeah. Okay. Because because we watched the Jump Boys video. It's it's bad. It's all right. Bad. So it's like a mix of just dust like, and carbon monoxide. Yeah. Just being like imagine out. imagine literally running an entire marathon behind a car. I literally cannot imagine like, that. Even without even without the dust. Yeah, just no. a car blowing yeah. smoke. Like a modern face. day car would yeah. be. Would be mm. awful. And now imagine... This is... It's 1904. Yeah. And the dust is inches deep that they're running through. And when there wasn't dust, there were massive, jagged rocks. Of course. Under all of the dust. Yeah. And, that would uh, have been there. The, the, the black South African athletes were running barefoot. That's another thing I feel is necessary to mention. Third complication, dogs. Packs of wild dogs along the route. So, so the Russia Olympics didn't invent the no, dogs no, problem. I see, no, we, I see. we invented the roving USA, packs of feral dogs. USA, that was us. USA. The fifth complication: no rules against doping and turn of the century doping methods. Yeah, there were they didn't have to have rules against it because it wasn't super helpful. No, I mean, I when you said that, the first thing I thought was that someone was just like jamming needles into their opponents no. during the race to like take them out no Ooh. no Ooh. it's worse than that's that. a better use of that would have drugs been, at the time yeah. it would have been better the sixth final and most significant complication lack of water there was only one water source along the route so this part i think i did because that was intentionally done yes. yes at the 12 mile mark the athletes the trainers and the coaches were not allowed to get the water themselves but had to get somebody unconnected to the race to get it for them. Wait, what? Yeah, there was. they weren't allowed to actually touch the well. Jesus. It was a well that had been contaminated with some kind of bacteria that caused intestinal distress as well. Um, like, pretty quickly. Like, it would give you the runs, like, immediately. Pun intended. All right, every... <laughs> every oh. I appreciate you're trying to salvage this with humor, but, like... <laughs> every marathon has dropouts. The average rate for completion is around 75 to 80% of the runners who enter finish the race. Is that true at the Olympic level? Yeah. Yeah, that's like every, okay, like okay. Mar every marathon. That's the average yeah. dropout rate is between 20-25% of people drop out. At the 1904 marathon, only 34% of the runners who entered actually finished. The winner of the marathon has the worst recorded time of any Olympic marathon runner. Not the worst winning time. The worst time out of all 1,421 recorded Olympic marathon times. Along with Len Tanyane, John Mashiani, Jan Mashiani, and Bertie Harris, the South Africans, we had 10 Greeks who hadn't won a run a marathon before. And in the 80s, it was discovered that most of them were actually Greek Americans with American citizenship, 
but are recognized as competing for Greece. Let's, I mean, let's give it to him. Yeah. That's fine. In this one, it's whatever. Of the Americans recognized as American, as in whiter than Greek, there was <laughs> Sam Miller. Uh. <laughs> Sam Miller, winner of the 1902 Boston Marathon. John Lorden, winner of the 1903 Boston Marathon and one of the best long-distance runners of his time. Michael Spring, winner of the 1904 Boston Marathon. And Arthur Newton, who had placed fifth at the 1900 Olympic Marathon. Fred Lors, who had won a place in the race after winning a five-mile race and had trained at night because he worked as a bricklayer during the day. Albert Corre, who we mentioned earlier, a French strike breaker who had been brought into the U.S. to break a butcher strike in Chicago and stuck around to run the marathon. I think he competed in the track and field somewhere else, too. Also joining the race was lone Cuban mm. runner Felix Carbajal de Soto. You're going to like this guy. He was a mailman who had never run a marathon before. He had never run in a competition before. He was not invited by the Cuban Olympic Committee. He didn't have enough money to get himself there, so he raised funds by running the length of Cuba, which is about 700 miles. Once he earned enough, he took a ship to New Orleans where he immediately lost all his money in a craps game. That is that is how craps works. It's a very complicated dice game and all of the rules are you lose. <laughs> New Orleans to St. Louis is another 700 miles, but Carbajal didn't run the whole way. He hitchhiked and showed up to the race on the, that 90-degree day wearing long pants with long johns underneath, street shoes, a belt, a beret, and a baggy long sleeve shirt because that's all the clothing he had. There are photographs of him, and he looks fabulous. He does look fabulous. This guy sounds great. He's amazing. Everybody else is in, like, pinnies and shorts, and he's got a beret and his, like, I mean, like swashbuckler shirt. Yes. Um, one of the other runners cut his pants off at the knee so he'd be a little more comfortable. That's nice. The race starts. They do the four or five laps around the track. Different publications listed different numbers of laps. And exit the stadium. Within two... Yeah. Within, Not any of the newspapers, no, apparently. They're too drunk. <laughs> within two blocks, John Lorden, Boston Marathon champion of 1903 and one of the greatest long-distance runners of his time, starts prof vomiting profusely and withdraws. This before or after the water? This is before. Oh, this is this way is like, before. This, this is, is like they do the laps around the stadium. So that's like they, two, maybe a mile and a half. And then they he's two blocks out of the stadium. Oh, yeah. okay, not two miles out of the stadium, two blocks. Out two of the blocks. Yeah, no, he didn't get okay, that far. Okay. Michael Spring, the 1904 Boston Marathon champion, led the pack as they left the stadium and maintained that lead until the first steep hill when he collapsed from exhaustion. Nine miles into the race, uh, Frank Lors, the, the bricklayer trained at night, uh, starts to suffer from extreme muscle cramps due to dehydration and withdraws from the race. Um, and he's still three miles from the well. So uh, he hitches a ride. The poisoned well. Yes. So maybe he's fine. Right. He hitches a ride and waves at some of the others while who are still running as he goes. When, when he drops out, Thomas Hicks is at mile 16. He has a good lead, but is deteriorating rapidly. He begs his trainer for water. His trainer, Charles J.P. Lucas, an unbelievable idiot, by the way, <laughs> uh, sponges his mouth out with water and dumps some over his head because they weren't allowed to give water other than at the, the well at the 12-mile mark. He also gives him some brandy to drink and egg whites mixed with 1 60th of a grain of strychnine. Okay. I have several questions. Yes. What kind of brandy? <laughs> I don't know the brand. Okay. Did people not know strychnine was super poison? 
Oh, they knew. And I'll get into why. Okay. Okay. The brandy, because he thought it was stimulant, because Charles J.P. Lucas was a world-class idiot to a truly dangerous level. So no one else was, like, giving their runners brandy. It was just him? Just him. And the strychnine, I think, was just him, too. Oh. Strychnine isn't as stupid as brandy, relatively. Though it's still stupidly dangerous. I would drink one of them right now. <laughs> and it's not the strychnine. But you're also not trying to run a marathon right now. It's fine. That was just the cat clawed him. Oh. All right. Strychnine is a stimulant. Unlike brandy. <laughs> and, yeah, very much unlike brandy. An incredibly powerful stimulant that's so bad people don't do it recreationally, like cracker meth. It works by... Blocking glycine receptors. Glycine is what your brain sends to your muscles when it's time for them to stop doing a thing. So, like, when I'm waving my arm here, mm -hmm. my brain's, like, sending glycine to tell it to stop. Mm -hmm. And if the glycine didn't happen, i just keep waving my arm. Uh, it's fine. It's a very charitable description of it's what glycine it does. deprivation. But yeah. uh, when the receptor is blocked, you can't stop moving. Too much of it causes uncontrollable, violent muscle spasms and eventual painful death. Right. But just a little, like 1 60th of a grain, means you physically cannot stop moving. And with no rules against doping, this was perfectly legal. Meanwhile... Although maybe not entirely helpful. Sounding yeah. like a better idea than where you describe it, but it's still <laughs> horrifically poisonous. Oh, yeah. Sometime around now, Felix Carbajal, the Cuban mailman, jogs along at a leisurely pace. J.P. Lucas gave him some untainted peaches because he hadn't eaten in two days. Uh, he stops to chat and practice English with the spectators, sometimes running backwards. At one point, he runs by an apple orchard and, still hungry, stops to eat some of the apples. From this, he gets a stomach ache and perhaps a little drunk because apples will naturally produce Naturally alcohol. ferment because yeah. apples are great. And he hasn't eaten in two days, so it wouldn't take a lot. Uh, he lies down to take a nap. Yes. Somewhere in here, John uh, Masciani and Len Tanyane are chased almost a mile off course by that pack of wild dogs. <laughs> At around 19 miles in, American William Garcia collapses by the side of the road, vomiting blood. You remember the dust. Garcia had swallowed so much of it. From it being in the air, it sanded the membrane of his stomach. Oh right no! Yes, he was hemorrhaging, and would have died if a couple of spectators hadn't driven by and spotted him. They drove him straight to the hospital, where he stayed for several days recovering. And this is about where the car that Fred Lors hitched a ride in broke down. It was still really hot, and they were going to have to wait for hours in the sun for somebody to come help. Lors was feeling better after his ride, so he decided to just run the rest of the way back. Like, why not? At there are so many reasons. Well, I mean, he officially withdrew. He's just going to jog his okay. way back because he doesn't want to sit around waiting in the car. At 20 miles in, Hicks is getting worse. This is the guy who got dosed with stripping. His skin is, quote, ashen pale. They give him more strychnine, <laughs> spike, egg whites, and brandy. Hicks the answer is always more poison. Poison eggnog is literally the <laughs> best way to run a marathon. I mean, it kind of literally is. Like, yeah, it's got it's brandy, brandy and egg whites. And strychnine. And strychnine. 
I mean, it does a body good. Take out one of those things, and it's a Christmas party. <laughs> and take out the strychnine. Oh, I'm, oh I've been doing eggnog wrong. <laughs> Hicks begs Lucas to let him lie down, but he makes him keep going. And I mean, he's pretty close. Like, this is less than five miles from the end. Uh, when Lors runs, back, runs past, looking great, <laughs> Hicks is crushed and almost quits. But they somehow got word about Lord's car ride and it convinced him to keep going. They use their cell phone. Yeah, that one cell phone. Uh, Hicks only has one mile left to go. He's fading fast. Lucas described him as, quote, his eyes were dull, lusterless. The ashen color of his skin had deepened. His arms appeared as weights well tied down. He could scarcely lift his legs while his knees were almost stiff. At this point, he has had... Two doses of strychnine, drank an entire flask of brandy, and a spectator gives him more brandy. Somebody offered him tea, but he refused it. I'm not sure why, as tea would be the best thing anybody tried to give him since he got some water on level 12. I have a possible suggestion. He was very drunk and poisoned. And hallucinating. He arguably better than the water he got at mile 12, because perhaps it wasn't... This was intended for human consumption. Unlike anything else he'd had that day. Hey, Brandy is not during a marathon, mind you. <laughs> yeah. like, but in you other know. situations. Let's not besmirch the name of Brandy. And at this point, he starts hallucinating that he has 20 more miles to run. Well, that is very unfortunate. They somehow convince him to keep going. Although at this point, Lucas and one of the other trainers have to get out of the car and physically drag Hicks as he goes. I think that that may be not allowed. They have photographs of this, and they never... They never stripped Hicks of his medal, so. Okay. I, Have you heard about the shenaniganry that is going on in this race? Like, they're like, whatever, at least he's not dying. He, he is, is dying! dying. <laughs> he's not dying as much as that guy who collapsed in yeah. the sand. He, he's dying the least of, well, he's he's Car- doing better than the guy who had to go to the hospital. That's yeah, all I'm going to yeah. say. Uh, they get to the stadium. Just in time to see Fred Lors being presented with the trophy. The guy the guy car ride? Yes. Solid. Nobody in the stadium knew about Lors' car ride. And he had shown up after they had after they had been expecting the winner to appear. They all got excited, and Lors just went along with it. Also solid. Hicks's team went ballistic. <laughs> As, and as soon as Lors was confronted, he gave up the ghost. He's like, yeah, you got me. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. Hicks managed to stagger to the finish line and immediately collapsed into the arms of his manager, too weak to accept the trophy. He was immediately taken to the hospital, where he nearly died, but Fine. eventually recovered. Fine. Yeah. Fine. In the three hours, 28 minutes, and 45 seconds it took him to run the race, he had lost eight what? Yes. It's like a leg. Yes. Normal. It's all normal. I don't not I don't believe. I mean, he was severely dehydrated, right? Like yes. Yeah, oh yeah. That is Yeah. Yeah. And he also had that like water that makes you poop. Yeah, like there so. there there were no like no fluids were staying in his body. Well, the brandy he was sweating that out probably at some point that because that was all that was left. Very painful. Yeah. Seriously, like and I'm gonna that was list... the only thing he was drinking with any consistency other than egg whites. And I'm that gonna... makes me want to puke just thinking about it. 
I'm going to list everybody who finished this race because I feel they like deserve they it. deserve it. So, Albert Corey, the French strike breaker, finished second at 3 hours, 34 seconds, and uh, 3 hours, 34 minutes, and 52 seconds. Arthur Newton finished third at 3 hours, 47 minutes, and 33 seconds. I'm not listing the times for all of this. Felix Carbajal, after his refreshing nap, finished the race and came in fourth. So close <laughs> to a medal. Yeah, right. But also not hospitalized. Yes. So when? Yeah. So like this is like the new version of the tortoise and the hare, and like maybe it's okay to take a nap. <laughs> yeah. If the race is you didn't horrible. win, but like didn't you? Yeah. In a way, <laughs> didn't you really? Yeah. Dead. Yeah, you have to be hospitalized after. Of the ten Greeks who entered, three finished, and Demetrios Valutis was the top-ranking one who came in fifth. Sixth was American David Neeland, followed by Henry Brawley at seventh and Sidney Hatch at eighth. Both. Uh, all Americans. Len Tanyane, the South African who had been chased by dogs, finished ninth, and it's widely believed he would have done much better if he hadn't had to run two miles further than everybody else. How did the dogs do? <laughs> well, they didn't catch Len. <laughs> or Jan. That's genuinely horrifying yeah. that a pack of dogs chased them. Like, that is... Yeah. That is, like, one of the most horrifying things I can imagine. Just, like... Being out, mind my own business, pack of feral dogs. John Masciani, the other black South African, was 12th, and with Greek Christos Zechariadis and American F.P. Devlin between them at 10th and 11th, respectively. John Furlow of America was 13th, and Andrew Oikonomon of Greece came in 14th and last. So only 14 of these guys actually finished yeah, the race. Last, but also maybe... Not even close to last. <laughs> yeah, maybe maybe everybody should have gotten a medal. Like this is what participation trophies were invented for. Right. This was these. Yeah, they I, need something. Of all the runners, speaking like we haven't had to, gotten the chance to do our like, what was it? Hometown heroes thing. Oh yeah, yeah. Because they, they none of because these. Because who lives in? No, but none of these, like, it was the, what was it, the Hunks, Honeys, and Hometown Heroes mm -hmm. was, like, a section I wanted to do, but then none of these after Athens has, like, produced anything like that. What are you talking about? Felix Carbajal? Felix Carbajal. Crash McGee. Crash McGee's our favorite. I don't think he was a favorite of anybody watching. Of all the runners, Felix Carbajal was the most popular. A uh, showman who charmed the crowd he lit and lifted his cap every time he passed the stand. His, all right. His beret. Uh, That's why you wear a hat. At this point... You may a have. hat in a hundred degree weather. He had long johns on. Well, not during the race. No, he did. They cut the. They cut his pants off. He but kept he had long johns he on. He kept the long johns on. Yeah, he put them on. Yes. You can take off one of those layers, he dude. Did, he did not do that. Oh. He ran the entire race in long johns. So at this point, <laughs> there are photos. Yeah. That's the only reason I believe you. <laughs> You can Google it. I would bing it. Oh, God. <laughs> At this point, you may have some unanswered questions, and I may not be able to answer all of them, but there is one thing I can clear up. The water, like we talked about, right. that was intentional. Because this lack of water was not an issue in 1896, 1900, or any of the other major marathons that happened in major cities on a yearly basis. This was on purpose. John Sullivan, our white supremacist, Olympics usurping amateur eugenicist, athletic director, wanted to conduct another scientific experiment. This time, he wanted to test the effects of purposeful dehydration on endurance athletes. Yay! Which he did without their knowledge or consent. These men were tortured for junk science. 
the race revealed nothing that wasn't already known, and there were so many mitigating factors on the athletes that nothing useful could have ever come out of it. And there was no control group, which I realize is the least horrifying thing about the entire enterprise. I mean, he scientifically created a cluster. (laughs) As for Fred Lors, who almost stole the gold medal from Tom Hicks, he was given a lifetime ban from competitive racing for his antics. However... That ban was rescinded less than a year later on the grounds of temporary insanity. <laughs> a fair, actually. I, that's fine. I, I have will zero complaints that. about yeah. that. I will give him that. He won the Boston Marathon in 1905 with a time of 2 hours, 38 minutes, and 25 seconds. And that, okay, and then we drive all the way down, back down to the bottom here, and we can talk about the good points, which is a short section. <laughs> hey, we covered a... Decent number of good points, mostly yeah. last episode. Yeah, there were there were some scattered high points yeah. of like actually nice stories, but a, in spite of kind of the way the yeah, in the spite of were. the horrors of how this was designed. Basketball was good. Basketball. Our our buddy uh, Fons, the 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 Cuban fencer, was like yeah. my my favorite Olympian so far. As much as I talk about Lance Elias, uh, Ellis, I love this little. Cuban fencer who beat all the French guys. Alright, uh, good points. Not much, aside from the occasional personal victory, like we were talking about, the little high points, the one-legged uh, gymnast. The silver linings. The yeah. one-legged gymnast is pretty good. Uh, Yuri continuing his dominance of the standing jumping events with polio. Um, Palme winning his gold medals, which he's been trying to for a while, the, the Hungarian swimmer. Um, but anyway, not much. But a lot of these, a lot of the actual personal victory stories are diminished by the roadblocks put up to prevent non-Americans from competing. Focusing a lot on the Germans for some reason, as I was, like, reading over that. Yeah, they, they do not have great luck. Um, and we weren't even at war with them at this point. No, this was the excuse in the previous Olympics yeah, yeah. of the country. It was a, well, it wasn't that they were at war. It was after the Franco-Prussian War. And they, well, well, France and Germany were always I'm just saying, like, direct response to being at war is a, it's junk, but at least it's a motivation. Like, yeah. we didn't even really have that. Yeah, so I don't know. We're just dicks. <laughs> yeah. In terms of legacy, this was the first time the medals awarded were gold, silver, and bronze, and put on ribbons around the neck instead of pinned to the shirts of the victors. So that's, that's one major That's good, because I wouldn't have trusted these guys not to just stab every <laughs> athlete when they were pinning those on. <laughs> So yeah, that's the 1904 Olympics. That's your high points? They had three medals this time? Yeah, and they put them on ribbons around their necks, which we still do. That's it. We nailed it. All right. Sounds like we nailed it. Best Olympics so far. I would say we won that one. James Edward Sullivan, you horrible, horrible man. He got to, like, keep doing stuff. Oh, yeah. He got to keep being a person. I I think the question there is, was this viewed as a failure at the time, or only with hindsight do we realize, holy shit, you almost killed everyone. The the marathon was... The marathon, yeah. They they were like, this was bad. They didn't didn't know at that point that the marathon didn't actually kill the most people. Right? Yeah, like, it that was wasn't water clear polo. until later. Yeah. Well, the marathon, everybody survived the marathon. Yeah, everyone right. lived. But, Not barely. Yeah. Only, with, only with the intervention of actual medical science. Yes. Water polo was the one that killed people. I didn't know that yet. Yeah, they didn't know it. 
But yeah, they, they knew though. They were like, wait, what? This is this is bad. This is not like the other marathons that we have run. This, yeah. this one seems to be going very poorly. Like you said, like he showed up, uh, Lors showed up like long after they were expecting the winner to show yeah. up. Yeah, because yeah, it was yeah. a really slow time for a winner. So they were like, okay, well, I guess it's rough out there. Yeah. For some reason. Um, and then Lors himself won his winning time, like in at the Boston Marathon a year later, was like an hour shorter. Yeah, yeah like, which seems like a lot. Yeah, it's a lot. That's a lot. There's of enough time that someone could, you know, take a nap conceivably in the middle of the race and, and still come finish in fourth. fourth. I mean, maybe it's a power nap. I don't know how marathons work. <laughs> I think the nap was the good choice. I think they all. Oh yeah, no, that naps. was super. And also eating pears, very good. Pears, mostly water, not strychnine. <laughs> I mean, not having strychnine in it is a huge. That's reason most. That's that most for pears. That, that, yeah. Most, most, <laughs> no. <laughs> But yeah, we will, uh, next time we're, we are going to talk about the 1906 Do, do things get better? Uh, the 1906 Interrelated Games, uh, we'll talk about why they happened, but they were run, it was back in Athens. Mm -hmm. it, it, Immediately better. Yeah. There's, the, the, like, no way it's worse. Get it out of Missouri. Yeah. <laughs> Step one. It's Missouri, not. the Athens of the U.S. It's not. Hell Yeah. <laughs> It's not connected to a world fair or anything like that, and the Greeks still, at this point, I think, are the only ones who know how to run an Olympics. You know, like, H.H. H. Holmes literally murdered people, but I think that was probably, that was a better world's fair than this. Yeah. <laughs> that was in mm. Chicago. Yeah. No, this, that was better. He murdered that more was better than, than four this. people, so that's a higher <laughs> he did it in a, He did it in, in the most vaudevillian way possible. Okay, we're not getting into H.H. H. Holmes. <laughs> that's a different podcast. I'm sorry I brought murder into this. Yes. Alright, thanks for listening. I don't, next one's going to be better. <laughs> <laughs> it can only the be better from here. The podcast will be better next time. <laughs> don't end your podcast with the next one will be better. <laughs>